Hello and welcome to the sixth neuroscience podcast. <laughs> and our seventh or eighth attempt at starting this. My name's Sam Webster and I'm with Phil Newton, who's going to do most of the talking because he no, knows all the neuroscience No, no, this is a two-way conversation. Well, you're trying to avoid the neuroanatomy, I'm trying to avoid the neuroanatomy, Not, so we'll both talk a bit about I mean, neuroanatomy. No avoidance, it's just that you are clearly the recognised expert on neuroanatomy. What did you tell your students about neuroanatomy in the lecture? What's the first rule of neuroanatomy? Uh, it was something to do with an onion, I think, wasn't it? The evolution of the brain? No. Have I said something offensive that's got back to you? It got back to me, yeah. I didn't think it was offensive. I thought it highlighted our avoidance of talking about neuroanatomy. You said the first rule of neuroanatomy is to not talk about neuroanatomy. I never said that. <laughs> Whoever, who, Whichever student told you that, that is a level two professionalism violation. <laughs> and they, I need to know names and, and numbers. Uh, right, okay. I would never be so flippant. Neuroanatomy is vitally important. It's just it's just not my area of expertise. So we're going to talk about some neuroanatomy today. You're going to talk about some neuroanatomy. I'm going to talk about function. Right. Of? Pain pathways. Pain pathways. What's the overall um, outline of the thing then? What exactly are we going to talk about? How are we going to start? What's in the middle? How are we going to finish? Uh, we are going to largely cover the content of the lecture from week 2.30 about pain okay uh we'll start with a noxious stimulus and follow that noxious stimulus along the various tubes and cables to the brain and then back down again okay good and then we'll at the end we'll go through a laundry list of some other important things uh we will we will spend a lot of time talking about the regulatory mechanisms which affect the perception of pain because they're important for understanding how analgesics work ah yes and our young doctors need to know about how That's to That's going to be important pain. clinically, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Look at you should probably be recording this with an anesthetician, an anesthetologist, an anesthetician, anesthetist, what? Anesthetist. Thank you. One of them. No, well, actually, no. No? You, you want to bring that up right now? Yeah, go on. Tell me why, tell me why I'm better than an anesthetist. It would, it would take a couple of hours for me to list all the ways. Um, <laughs> The simple answer is that we don't know how general anaesthetics work. <gasps> Shock horror. No. Oh, okay. I mean, we really, really don't know. Yeah. There's a a few theories, but they're largely theoretical and it's more based upon experience. Okay, so what's the point of this lecture then? This is more about, well, we need to know the basic neuroscience of how pain is perceived and how pain is treated with things like opiates and aspirin and uh, the other thing. What's the other thing? Opiates, aspirin, and... Oh, yeah. Um, local anaesthetics. Right. But... Um, <laughs> general anaesthetics, we don't care about those. And that's what an anaesthetist do, right? I mean, is that... Okay, yeah, yeah, sure. I see, right. I'm not saying you're better than an anaesthetist. I'm Thank just you. saying they wouldn't have a lot to... Uh, they would not be able to inform our discussion in a way that may would make it significantly more useful for the students. Okay. So, what is pain? Pain... Is uh, life. Sorry. No, what is pain? <laughs> uh, pain... Is... Well, the dictionary definition is is the feeling or perception of something... Very unpleasant, irritating, sore, stinging, throbbing, aching, uh, generally feeling miserable, whatever. It's a, 
entirely subjective phenomenon. Whereas most of what we're going to talk about is nociception, which uh-huh. is the biology through which that sensation arises. Right. <laughs> Go on then. You want me just to talk? Yeah. Uh, well, we you want me to ask you intelligent questions. Yeah, ask me an intelligent question. So where do we start in the pain pathway then? Well, we should we the should receptive pathway. Well, it would be useful to start before we even get that to that point by briefly mentioning why pain is important. Uh, there may be a general layman's perception that pain is just a bit of an annoyance, and if we could do away with it, the world would be a much better place. Is pain important to stop you damaging yourself yeah seriously yeah. yeah that's that's not just an intelligent question that's an intelligent statement because those people who don't experience pain at all tend to die at a young age tend they to do. break lots of bones and yeah that sort of thing right it tells you when stuff's gone wrong when stuff's yeah. broken yeah stops you burning your fingers yeah when you're baking cakes that sort of thing you should pay attention to pain yeah as an go. athlete, I always have to pay attention to niggles and little bits of pain. What's it telling me? What am I hurting? What Are you technically an athlete? I mean, how do I've you got define? athlete's foot, so I'm technically an athlete. Yeah, but I I know 90-year-old overweight men who've had athlete's foot. Yeah, they're athletes too. I don't think having athlete's foot is the dictionary definition of being an athlete. Well, we'll have to check that later. I think it is. Okay. Um, so from fungus back to nociceptive pathways... Or nocicpetive, no, no as I appear to have spelt it on more than one occasion. Oops. All right, so you start with your noxious stimulus. Yeah. You're, you're standing on a drawing pin. Ooh. Or yeah. getting stung by a nettle. Or... I stood on a scalpel once, so yeah. I'm you close. did? Yeah. Did you feel that, though? Um, I felt it when the bone stopped it, stopped the blade. <laughs> and I felt it afterwards. I no, I didn't laugh, feel it like. going in. It was very sharp. And it wasn't a lab incident. This was at home. This was not well, that I have lots of scalpels lying around at home. Well, you clearly have at least one. Yeah, it's the the missus. Um, she left a scalpel in a bag, not covered properly, and I just stepped on the bag, and it went up into my calcaneal bone. Nice. Lots of blood. What was she doing with scalpels in a bag? She's she's uh, she's an artist. She was doing her interior architecture degree at the time. Ah, I see. Like that. So she was cutting out lots of models, and, and she didn't have a sharp safe in her. Oh, yeah. God, you just, these artists, eh? I mean, you just. <laughs> it was not a wise way to store a scalpel. So, yeah, I stepped on the scalpel, went to the bone. You're right, at the time it wasn't terribly painful, but, you know, there was a, ooh, what's that? And then once I pulled the blade out, that that was pretty painful. First rule of first aid, you don't pull the blade out, do you? Yeah, if it's, in, if it's in your heel, if your foot, you can yeah, pull no, the blade out. You can pull the blade out. I'm not going to tell say. medical students the first rule of first aid. <laughs> So anyway, so you step on your scalpel and yeah. your, your, your nociceptors are activated. Right. Your nociceptors zip back through your dorsal, your dorsal root into your dorsal horn. Yeah, they've got a long way to go just to get up there, haven't they? Yeah, well, not with your little legs. I mean. Oh, God's sake. Um, and activate a basic uh, motor reflex to cause you to lift your, your foot up. Yeah. That's basically it. Ah. Job done. That's handy. We don't need to talk about anything else. Done. Okay. Lecture over. I thought neuroscience was hard. Nah, it's a piece of cake. Good. So your primary, you got you got two types of fiber. Yeah. Two types of nociceptive fiber communicating your pain signals. You got you got your A delta okay. and your C fiber. A delta. Yeah. And C. 
A delta is is a myelinated, myelinated fiber, carries your fast pain sensation, yep, so and generally really only communicates pain of one type. So if you burn yourself, you would activate a different A delta fiber than if you stepped on a scalpel. Okay, so different fibers. Whereas okay. your C fibers is yeah. your other type of nociceptive fiber. It's a bit slower because it hasn't got myelin. Remember we talked about myelin? Yep. Yeah, I'm good with myelin. I'm an anatomist. Well, sorry. My, my apologies. <laughs> yeah, so if it's unmyelinated, Never question it's not going to propagate knowledge. the application potentials as quickly. Yeah, and C fibers are generally polymodal, so they pick up everything. Really? So one C fiber can pick up different things? Oh, yeah. Okay. Smart stuff, C fibers. Um, and we we may it may be worth us uh, deviating for a second to talk about the other types of fibers. Obviously, if you've got a delta, that suggests you've got an a alpha and an a beta. These are non nociceptive fibers, though, are they? Under normal conditions, yes, that's correct. Right. Your a beta um, is is a lot of your touch and your pressure and all the rest of it. Right. Um, and they're they're worth mentioning because the the activity of the different fibers can compete with each other. All right. So when someone yeah. kicks you in the shin, yeah, the first thing you do, generally, athletes may be different because they're so rock hard and tough. But if someone kicks me in the shin or bangs me on the head, the first thing you do is rub the affected area. Yeah, and hop around on the other foot. You're hopping around may be a useful distractor, but rubbing the site of an injury. Yeah. Activates your A beta fibers, ah. which pick up your touch and your pressure and all the rest of it, and inhibits the activity of your nociceptive fibers. Okay, which so is the reason feels better. Yeah. Hey. The example I used in the lecture was Bert Troutman. Fun. Uh, goalkeeper for Manchester City, 1956 right. FA Cup final. Wasn't there. You weren't? No. I don't think I was either, though okay. sometimes it feels like it. Uh, heroic man, Jap- German prisoner of war. Oh, yeah. Um, decided to stay in Britain. After uh, being released, played in golf in Manchester City. 17 minutes to go in the cup final, dived at the feet and went on rushing forward. Yeah. Broke his neck. Ow. Yeah. Carried on playing. What did he break? <sighs> a bone. Sorry. Okay, so he broke a bone in his neck. Um, Carried on playing, but you see in the video footage him rubbing his neck and in famous yeah. photographs. Apparently when he collected his uh, FA Cup winner's medal, his neck was visibly crooked. Ooh. Uh, didn't have it diagnosed until three days afterwards when he had an x-ray. Uh-huh. But the point is he rubbed his neck to make it feel better. Okay. And so potent was his rubbing that um, he didn't necessarily feel sufficient pain to think, I've broken my neck, maybe I should not be playing football. And he finished the match. And made some notable saves with a broken wow. neck. Yeah. yeah. Think about that. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, there's also kind of the, the adrenaline, isn't there? Well, we will come on to that. In fact, why don't we talk about that now if you want? Go on then. Stress-induced analgesia. analgesia. Yeah, because he doesn't want to go off the pitch. He want to keep going. He's got, you know, he's got a yeah. major job to do. He doesn't want to let anybody down. He must have had loads of adrenaline. Yeah. So being being that work? sympathetically activated in such a way does activate your amygdala. A stri- se- severe stress, perhaps the most notable example of this, and activates... The descending projections, which we'll come on to later on, which mediate endogenous analgesia, and you do actually feel less pain and oh. conditions of extreme stress. So people who fall down uh, ravines and uh, get bold, boulders landed on them and have to cut their own arm off, yeah, they actually feel less pain under conditions of extreme stress. Mm. What, you're not convinced? I can, yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, he was there for days want. though, wasn't he? 
Huh? He was there for days. So that is that when he actually got to the point where he cut his. Arm Do you off. think there was ever a point during those days? Certainly, when the point at which he started to cut his own arm off, do you think he wasn't stressed? I think he was thinking that ass is all right. Yeah, and that's enough is it, to reduce the pain for later I'm, to do it. I'm not saying it didn't hurt. Yeah. And obviously, it was that or die. Yeah. But there are countless examples in uh, popular culture of people undergoing, able to withstand extreme pain. And able to do things you wouldn't normally be able to do. Yeah. Only in extreme circumstances. Yeah, what do you think about that? Mm, I don't want to test it. We could if you want. No, you're right. Sure? Yep. It's just an an example of how amazing neuroscience is. Yes, okay. Good, amazing neuroscience. What's the next bit of amazing neuroscience? All right, so where were we? We knocked your stimulus. You've stepped on your scalpel. Sensory fiber types, different type of types. Yeah, we've done that. Okay. Um, Your fibers, your neurons in your fibers. Yeah. Conduct signals via action potentials. Yeah. This is important because shutting down those action potentials will shut down the transmission of pain. Yep. And is the basis for the action of local anesthetics. Makes sense. Lidocaine or lignocaine, depending upon how old you are and which country you live in. Um, blocks voltage gating sodium channels, shuts down the transmission of pain. Okay. And everything else. Can you target nociceptive fibers specifically or do you just target everything? Not as far as I know. Yeah. But that doesn't mean you can't. Uh. Um, you, you, your noxious stimuli come in a variety of forms. Yes. So you've got your, your, your chemicals, your temperatures, your, your, your breaking of, your stretching of your neuronal cell membranes and all the rest of it. Uh, they all act to simply trigger the firing of an action potential. Yeah. It's worth making the point that nociceptors do not have specialized structures on the end of them, like most other sensory receptors, like hair cells and Meisner's corpuscles and all the rest of it. Right. Just because, um, you know, it's the, the theme of pain is the same as for most sensory information processing. And yet most sensory information processing involves some wacky-looking specialised structure on the end of a neuron. Yeah. Whereas nociception is just the activation of neurons, which are other, otherwise morphologically fairly normal. So what's the end of the neuron look like? They, are they attached to other things or just, they just end? They just end. They just yeah. end and it's that yeah. end like that's a, then stimulated. Like a textbook neuron. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, nothing huh. special about them. So on that principle, though, the basic theme as I said, is, is the same as it, largely the same as it is for the processing of most, certainly peripheral sensory information. The information comes in to the spinal cord through the dorsal horn. Yeah. A reflex action, if required, comes out through the ventral horn and uh, information about the event goes up the spinal cord, is processed by the important parts of the nervous system who then send a response back down again. Okay. Same as we talked about for movement. Remember movement? Oh, no, we didn't oh, yeah, talk about movement. movement yeah. uh, I shot myself in the foot there. Didn't <laughs> but you know all about movement, don't you? Movement will be coming up soon. Will it? Yeah, well, I say soon. We'll do movement one day. No, I told you. What? George Osborne has decided that movement is to be scrapped. It's oh. a victim of the government cuts. It's an austerity measure. Okay. These are times of uh, hard times for the country, Sam. 
Is there a lot of anatomy? Is there a lot of anatomy in the movement? Yeah. Is that why you're trying to avoid it? No. Right, okay. It's a bit boring, though. It's important. All right, all right, we'll do it. Where were we? We're busy. You're busy, you know. Tell you, trying to pin down Sam Webster to do a podcast. It's impossible. It can be tricky. Right, so we were adding the brain to our pain pathways, were we? Yes. Is that what we're getting to? Okay. Uh, Yeah. Well, we'll talk, yes, we'll talk about the passage to the brain, which is where... Um, your detailed knowledge of the anatomy of the spinal cord comes in. Uh, um, your nociceptors come into the spinal cord, the dorsal horn. Yes. They might go up or down a segment or two. Yes, but not very far. Not very far. And they do that in the, the whatever your anatom- anatomical term is for the outermost part of the dorsal. Who's that? This hour's There you go. Tract. There you go. Tract? Yeah, this hour's tract. Is that the first lamina? I think so. Yeah, because we have the lamina. Look yeah, at him go. First outwards, going deep, yeah. So yeah. that's Lissauer's tract, right? They go up in Lissauer's tract, and once they get to where they want to uh, cross... So that's the same neuron coming into Lissauer's tract, going up a little bit, and then synapsing. That is correct. Yep. The synapse is in the substantia gelatinosa. Right. Which is lamina number two, right? Is it? You're supposed to tell me that. Yeah, no, I... Good lamina number two, so that's the next deepest yeah, lamina yeah, yeah. of uh, neurons in the grey matter um, on the dorsal end. And the so your primary nociceptor, which is the one that comes in the periphery, comes in, goes up, yep. enters the substantia gelatinosa, right. synapses with a second-order nociceptor. So that's where the synapse is then? Yes, right. in the so substantia where gelatinosa. The, where does the second-order neuron go to? It immediately goes across the spinal cord. So... The second-order neuron, it synapses with the second-order neuron in the, in the substantial gelatinosa on one side, uh-huh. crosses over to the other side. Uh-huh. Okay, then what? Ascends as the spinothalamic tract. So then it's in the white matter. Yeah. And that's the same neuron, or is there another synapse? The second-order neuron then passes into the white matter. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Second-order neuron does the crossing and the ascending. Yeah, that's how I understood it. Okay. You understood it, it correctly. Phew. <laughs> And then it ascends all the way up to that magical part of the brain known as the thalamus, right? That's correct. Okay. Which part of the thalamus is it, Sam? You've got a... There's this, uh, there was an abbreviation I saw earlier. Was it... It wasn't... Was it L... Oh, visible panty line. Was it that one? D- that would Ventro share an abbreviation with it. Is it abbreviation? And is Ventro- that the correct term? BPL. Ventral, ventral posterior. Lateral. Um, sorry? Ventral posterior lateral. Ventral posterior what? Lateral. Lateral. Or lateral. Nucleus. Yeah. Ventral posterior lateral nucleus. Yeah. Okay. Because in the brain we use anterior and posterior, yeah, caudal, yeah, yeah, cranial, yeah. dorsal, ventral, all differently, don't we? So we're adding ventral and posterior together to explain where this nucleus is in the thalamus. I would say it goes to the thalamus. Do oh. our students need to know more than that? I don't think so. It goes to the visible panty line in the thalamus. Yeah. Oh, God. Right, okay, yes. And, and the thalamus is like a sieve, isn't it? Okay, it's, it's, it's more like a... It, it, <laughs> it, it filters the information going in and relays it out, but it's a bit more complicated than a sieve probably, isn't it? I think that'll do. I think that that sums up the function of the thalamus. It bounces the information 
onto the cortex. Does because you don't get all of the sensory information uh, all the time, do you? No, but... You just get the bits that are pertinent, which is what one of the thalamus's jobs. Am I right? I, that'll do. Vaguely, yeah, okay. No, I think that, that rings the right bell. Though it's worth point, stating that if any sensor, any sensor information does get to the cortex, yeah. which is ultimately where it ends up from the thalamus, yeah. it has to have gone through the thalamus beforehand. Yeah. So although it may not all end up at the cortex, if it ends up at the cortex, it's been through the thalamus. Okay, sounds like a good definition. So is there a synapse then between the thalamus and another neuron that's passing out to the somatosensory cortex? Yeah. Okay. And that's then a thalamocortical okay. projection to so the cortex. there's another neuron there, right? Yeah. Good. Um, Check me out. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I told you, ladies and gentlemen, we have neuroanatomist extraordinaire. We can't, yeah. The neuroanatomy is getting better, isn't it? We can talk about neuroanatomy, however much we joke about it. Yeah. As well as your uh, excellence at the mixing desk of the podcast. Uh, when it works, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we're there. We're in the somatosensory cortex. Job done, right? Uh, well, largely, yes. For most types of pain, um, it, the regions beyond the thalamus don't have an awful lot to do. Um, the insular and the cingulate cortex make pain unpleasant is the s simplest definition of what they do. Huh. And then the somatosensory cortex tells you whereabouts the pain has come from. But if you damage the somatosensory cortex, you still feel the pain. It's just difficult for you to figure out where it's coming from. Oh. Yeah. Right. Yes. Because the cortex does the complicated stuff. And pain isn't very complicated because it's evolutionarily so important. Yeah. And most organisms, except fish, feel pain. That's not actually true. It just makes me feel better. Being an angler. Yeah. Um, I'm all right because I go fishing, but I don't actually try to catch fish. So, you know, ethically, I feel good about that. Anyway, off fishing. <laughs> so can't we do okay, a podcast so about that instead? We could, we could do a good podcast about whatever you want. So the somatosensory cortex, then its job, as much as anything else, is to let you know where that pain has come from, so you can rub it. Yeah, oh, I like that. And do whatever else is necessary to alleviate the pain, because the pain usually means that something bad has happened. Yeah, like put the bone back in or whatever. Sharks bitten your hand off. Yeah. Um. So, largely, the cortical regions associated with pain perception aren't really important in dealing with pain. And the, the vast amount of dealing with pain that our medical students will have to do um, will involve dealing with it below the level of the cortex. However, yep. uh, it is worth us taking another detour to briefly consider phantom limb pain. Okay. Because it does demonstrate some of the important aspects of the biology of the cortex and uh, is a, a, a phenomenon that is on the increase. Really? What, more people are losing limbs? Yeah. Any reason for... Oh, diabetes. 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 And uh, improvised explosive devices. Oh, right. Oh, blimey. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's, it's on the increase. So your phantom limb pain, I assume you have a reasonable understanding of the basic concept of phantom limb pain. The concept of, as in what it is, you've had a limb off and it, you still feel pain from a limb that's not there. Exactly. That bit I do. Why? I have no idea. Uh, well, there's, there's no good reason for it. Um, and it's also worth making clear that you, 
phantom limb pain obviously is usually associated with pain, but you can just feel the limb. Yeah. So the, that the, the person may be able to, to feel the limb without it hurting, maybe feel that they can move it or feel that it's stuck in a particular position or that it's it's functionally impaired in some way without actually hurting. But the most common description of phantom limb perception is of it hurting. Okay. And it's remarkably common in people who've had an amputation. Does it does it go away with time? Does your brain kind of cope? It does to an extent, but it but not it's not like you have it for a few weeks and then it's done. So you could wake up years later with a really sore foot, a pain in your foot that you don't have. I don't think it comes on suddenly. Uh it it I, as I understand it it develops fairly rapidly after the amputation. Yeah. And then slowly fades in uh intensity over a period of months. So after I think after 6 months there is a noticeable decrease in the sensation but it it's not like it's gone away. And it's something that affects the vast majority of people who have had um an amputation of some sort. All right. Is there any neuroscience we should talk about? Yeah. Link that, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, loads of neuroscience. I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't sure if there's much explanation or not. Um, I wouldn't bring it up if there wasn't any neuroscience. Um, so what happens is, well, the basic principle, and one which often gets lost, certainly in older textbooks and descriptions of neuroscience, uh, it's it was often considered that the neurosis, nervous system is fairly fixed and inflexible. Um, it's now well established that the nervous system is plastic yeah. and adapts to uh, to anything you chuck at it. Yeah. So in this case, what happens is it gets confused. Uh, yeah. When you chop your arm off, or when... Uh, I should be a bit more professional about it, shouldn't I? Yeah. When an arm is removed, uh, the bones and all the other bits of anatomy are removed, yeah. but the pain processing pathways we talked about just a few minutes ago are still there. Still, yeah. They're just a bit truncated. Yeah. So information still comes in, although there's less of it, and it's it's not the correct information. Um, and so you get confusion both in the spinal cord and in the somatosensory cortex. Okay. So in your spinal cord, you just get... The simplest description of what happens is you get rewiring of the spinal cord. Um, you may get prolonged sensitization of the nociceptors. Yeah. Okay, so they fire two stimuli which are um, sub-threshold or which would not normally be painful at all or they just fire without stimulus. Yeah. Um, and you also get rewiring such that sensory afferents, the ones we talked about, coming from Bert Troutman's neck, uh, which would usually convey touch and pressure, may uh, s- end up synapsing with the second-order nociceptors so that they oh. stimulation of those is perceived as pain. Oh, right. So the point is, in the spinal cord, certainly, the representation of the limb is still largely there. It's just a bit confused. And um, one of the mechanistic explanations for phantom limb pain which is not conceptually very satisfying but appears to be fairly well established is that this confusion is expressed as pain okay uh the same type of confusion occurs in the somatosensory cortex 
So you, you, we talked about, have we talked about the homunculus? You, have you and I talked about the homunculus? Yeah, I think we have, yeah. I mean, I, I know of the homunculus. I think okay. we've talked about it here as well. You've got your sensory homunculus and your motor homunculus. Yeah. So on the outside of your, on your sensory homunculus, obviously there's a large region of your cortex devoted to the sensation from your hand yeah. and your forearm. Yeah. And when that gets removed, that region of the cortex gets confused. Yeah. Because it's not getting as much information as it was, and the information it's getting is nonsense. And the regions adjacent to that part of the cortex might take it over. Ah. So uh, in a, there's a famous example where uh, a boy who'd had his forearm amputated above the elbow could feel the representation of his hand on his face because the reason of the somatosensory cortex that encodes the information from his face is next to that for his hand. And so the information, the area that represents his face invaded a little bit and they all got a bit confused. Blimey. Um, again, it's not conceptually very satisfying. Confusion is expressed as pain um, is basically where we're at. Okay. But the point is, if you can deal with the confusion, then you can, in many cases, deal with the pain. Yeah. Okay, so if you can trick your, certainly your, your sensory processing regions into thinking that you've got a limb that works and is normal, then often that very rapidly eliminates phantom limb pain. And one of the ways this is done is with so-called mirror visual feedback. Yeah. Okay, so you set up a mirror which reflects the image of, in the case of the forearm, your good forearm. Yeah. And you move your good forearm around. I'm demonstrating this for Dr. Webster, but obviously it's not going to come through in the podcast. You move your good forearm around and you trick your various sensory regions into thinking you've got a good arm. Yeah. Rather than a phantom limb. And the symptoms are often instantly alleviated. So the pain is... The pain, and it's also, you know, the perception of the phantom limb being swollen or fixed in a particular place. It's often telescoped, so it's not perceived as being the same size as it was. Yeah. It's often a lot smaller, and often that is um, almost instantly alleviated. Wow. Yeah. Hey, cool stuff. How cool is neuroscience? Neuroscience is great. <laughs> Finally. <coughs> Finally. And that's neuroscience without any anatomy, because we don't really know how it works. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... Next. More anatomy. Okay. From the interesting stuff back to the cables and the tubes. All right. So you were talking about um, descending pathways that modulate yeah. pain. Is that right? Um, so so how does that work? How is the incoming pain modulated by fibres that are descending down from the brain? Because I only have a very vague idea of what, what exists there and how that works. That's all you really need. <laughs> probably not quite as vague as my understanding so there, there are there are neurons descending down from the brain from what from the periaqueductal gray oh where's that it's I, it's in the brain stem i think it's in the medulla oh, okay. is it yeah that's a good question i'm not very good at remembering basic neuroanatomical facts like that midbrain midbrain that's right, right. um yeah it's a bit higher up than that that's right midbrain it's, you know, if it's below the cortex, it's, it's all a bit squashy, mish, squashy, squishy, squishy mess. So we've got neurons descending from the periaqueductal grey yes. matter in the midbrain, descending down. Do they, do they go all the way down the spinal cord to all the different levels? 
No. Oh. Where do they go then? They go to the nucleus Raphae Magnus, which is part of the reticular formation. That's like a Swedish cyclist. Nucleus Raphae Magnus. Mm, Why a cyclist? Uh, <laughs> you not be a Swedish author or something? Sounds like some big burly Swedish fisherman, like sprint or something. I don't know. Are there, are there any famous fishermen except John Wilson? He's not Swedish. <laughs> no, I just said generally famous fishermen. We're getting off topic again. <laughs> so oh, the, the, I think we're actually getting on topic. But there you go. Yeah, this is where we want. It's a sunny day. We want to be outside fishing. Right. So the nucleus Raphae Magnus. So that's going to be a fairly big nucleus in the midline, Raffae, Raffae tending to refer to midline structures. It does, does it? Yeah. I've learned some I've learned some anatomy there. Scrotal Raffae. That's all. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, okay. Um, we really didn't need that. And you spelt nucleus wrong in your slide. Yeah. yeah. Nucleus. That was that's a uh, a learning point for the students. Okay. Any student which points that out to me gets uh, a free whisper. I wouldn't have brought it up. It's just you asked me to point it out to yeah, you. I know, Otherwise, I, I would have just let I it I want lie. my mistakes to be laid bare for all to see. So don't write Nucellus Raphae Magnus in the exam question. Mm. So we've got the Nucleus Raphae Magnus. So yep. the oh, so the fibres from the periaqueductal grey matter are descending down to the Nucleus Raphae Magnus. And that's in the medulla. Yeah. Then what happens? Then the, the those projections go down into the spinal cord. So there's another neuron from there which extends down to the spinal cord. Yeah. And that extends down to all levels, does it? Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Okay. And what does that do? That very simply shuts down the the synapse between the first order nociceptor and the second order nociceptor. Ah, so that bit of anatomy was important. Yeah. Oh yeah. Never so, said anatomy wasn't important. So the brain itself can block the pain pathway right down to that level at the end of the first yeah. neuron. Oh, wow. Why That's that? largely the mechanism by which it blocks pain. So is this why something hurts a lot to start with and then hurts a little bit less with time, or is that something completely different? That's probably more to do with your... Um your A delta fibers and your C fibers. Oh, okay. I mean, without rubbing and stuff, I'm just... No, no, I mean, your A delta fibers, the A delta and C fibers are both types of nociceptor. Yeah. But A delta is fast and um, short-acting. Oh, Whereas C fibers okay. are a bit slower, and um, but the sensation lasts for longer and is of a lesser intensity. Oh, I see, okay. And that mediated by A delta fibers. So why have we got this mechanism then for blocking pain between the first and second neurons in a pain pathway? You mean from, from an evolutionary perspective? Yeah. Well, because you don't want to feel prolonged pain. And in times of crisis, um, when the shark bites your hand off, yeah. uh, although you, you need to get away from the shark more than you need to do anything else. So the pain is telling you, all right, my hand is no longer there and I should stop the bleeding. But as essential as it is to do that, if you don't get away from the shark before you do that, the shark's yeah. going to bite your other hand off and you're going to die. Sure. Well, okay. So you have uh, endogenous analgesic mechanisms which will shut down to a certain extent uh, endogenous pain mechanisms. Uh -huh. And they do that through 
the action of the opioids. Ah, yes. Yeah, there's a glimmer of interest. And we use the opiates, don't we, in um Yeah. In managing pain. That's how you would make the distinction, is it, between opiates and opioids? Uh, well, as a runner and talking about the what's it high. Mm. The runner's high. Yeah, runner's high. That's my layman's perspective of being aware of opioids and cannabinoids endogenously and opiates being you know, something that's applied to my... Is that backwards? Is that right? No, that's that. That's largely the distinction that is used, though a lot of textbooks and certainly certainly a lot of popular science sources mix the two terms up. Oh, okay. So, I mean, if you, some people will care about that. Right. Some people from whom our students may be receiving education may care a lot about the difference between opiates and opioids. I don't give a monkey's. Ah. But uh, I explained it to them in the lecture, and you have very neatly explained it to them in the podcast. Okay, good. Ticked box. So what happens is your your projections from your nucleus raphimagnus and also your um, locus aurelius, which is... Uh, <laughs> that, that's just a Roman emperor. You're making stuff up now. I swear. <laughs> locus aurelius. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we don't make it up. <laughs> this is one of the few parts of anatomy I know. Your locus aurelius and your nucleus raphimagnus, they uh, release noradrenaline and serotonin respectively uh, okay. onto interneurons yeah. in your spinal cord. Yeah. In, interneurons in all parts of neuroscience gem- generally do the stuff that's cool. And in this case, your interneurons release your opioids. Oh, okay. So those opioids are released onto the synapse between your uh, primary nociceptor and your secondary nociceptor, or second-order nociceptor. Yeah. And they will shut down the activity at that synapse through inhibiting presynaptic voltage-gated calcium channels and um, hyperpolarizing the postsynaptic um, site. Neat. So... The spur for those interneurons to release those opioids comes from these descending projections. Yeah, yeah. And that's basically how it works. Well, that's quite neat. So do we then take advantage of that mechanism in pain relief, or is that occurring somewhere else? No, well, both. Right. So in terms of uh, exogenous analgesia, yeah, that's part of how it works. But the, the... Biology of the periaqueductal gray is also responsive to opioids. Yeah. So if you inject opioids there yeah. through a series of double negatives, you will get the release of opioids. Okay. In um, in the spinal cord. Lower the spinal down. Cord, oh, that's yeah. that's tidy. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um. That's basically it for Good. endogenous analgesia. We, we I, it's worth. Spending a moment or two talking a bit more about the opioid system because I think this is an appropriate place to do it. Because that, 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 I can see that's really important clinically, right? Pain management. Yes. Yeah. Morphine is still the gold standard yeah. for uh, moderate to severe pain, as I understand it anyway. Yeah. So you've got three different types of opioid receptor. He's frowning. Yeah, I'm trying to keep up. So three, three types of opioid receptor. Yeah. Yeah, go on. Mu. 
Uh, not called ABC then. Hope you're doing that. Mew. I didn't name them. Yeah, yeah. If I named them, I'd have called them Sam A, Sam B, and Sam C. Oh, I'm just reflecting the pain that the students will be feeling. So you've got Mew, Delta, Delta, and Kappa, and Kappa. Yeah. Mew, Delta, Kappa. Yes. How are they different? Uh, functionally, Mew and Delta are the sites of action for most of your exogenous opiate analgesics. Uh huh. Kappa. We don't really care about Kappa at this point. Okay. Uh, within those three subgroups, there are then subtypes of, so there's a mu1 receptor, mu2. But of course. Um, if you really care about opioids and opiate pharmacology, you can. There's some extended reading available. If you really want to, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, and so, yeah, there are three types of receptor. Each receptor has. There are also three types of ligand. There's overlap between the ligands and the receptors. So your endorphins, which historically were considered to be responsible for your runner's high, yeah. uh, are, they are agonists at all three, but it's thought that uh, a lot of their euphoric action comes through the mu opioid receptor. Uh-huh. So analgesia, mu and delta, yeah. generally euphoria and addiction. Mu? Yeah. Ah. Um, that's, that's really all we need to say about that. No, that's nice. That's good. Yeah, that's nice. Compact. Yeah. Fine. Yeah, you like that. Yep. Um, your opioids, opioid receptors are in other areas, and they do do other things. In other areas of what? The brain. The brain. Yeah. Okay. Another country. Well, I meant the. What if you meant more than just the brain, the body as a whole? But no, that would be silly, wouldn't it? They might. Well, they might <laughs> they be. Well I just, be. You wouldn't yeah, know. <laughs> was, would I know? Or was it care? I don't know. Let's keep it in the brain. Distinction. So there are other receptors in the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So very simply, you take an opiate analgesic or an opiate of some form, then you will feel analgesia. You may also feel. Uh, then you may also experience a number of other symptoms, including euphoria, yeah. sedation. Suppression of coughing, respiratory depression, you may feel nauseous and vomit, uh, you may become constipated, and your pupils may shrink to a very small size. Okay. Fine. Many of those effects are clinically useful. Yeah. Uh, even for analgesia. The analgesia is obviously, the analgesic effects are obviously useful for analgesia, but the euphoria is also a fairly important part of opiate analgesia because uh, although you may still feel the pain to some extent, you don't care about it as much. Right. I think the, the phrase that's used to describe opiate analgesia is, I can feel the pain, but I don't care. Right. Sedation obviously may be clinically useful, certainly yeah. an important clinical consideration. Suppression of cough yeah. is useful. Um, respiratory depression is one of the dangerous side effects. Uh, nausea and vomiting... Um, not particularly helpful. All of those effects, except constipation and meiosis, are subject to tolerance. Uh-huh. And the tolerance is fairly rapid. I think in humans, it's two to three weeks of tr- a fairly heavy opiate uh, morphine treatment will result in tolerance to yeah. all those effects. And I think analgesia and, and euphoria are two of the effects which uh, develop the strongest tolerance. Uh-huh. I'm losing him. No. Um, but not constipation and no my constipation and meiosis, meiosis are the only two where you don't develop tolerance so you'll always be able to pick up the meiosis if yeah. not the constipation 
Exactly. Okay. Yeah. See, you're not losing me. I'm paying attention. No, I'm still here. Yeah, yeah. No, he's, he's finding uh, a legal application of the science I'm telling him. <laughs> um, I forgot what I was going to tell you. Oh, yeah, we couldn't go without mentioning flapjacks. Uh, what, flap, what are flapjacks going to do with this? <laughs> flapjacks, your, most fa- your favourite food stuff. Are we back to dopamine? Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it's an important distinction because uh, even some eminent scientists and certainly a lot of the popular lay press and Hollywood film producers will describe dopamine as the the pleasure chemical or the love chemical or the molecular basis for how you feel pleasure. Right. Which it isn't. Yeah. It's how you learn about those things. Yeah. I remember that. You do? Yeah. Good. The thing that makes you feel good is the opioids. Right, okay. It's obviously an oversimplification, but I think think it's one I would prepare to stand by. Uh, and the simplest way to def- to demonstrate this uh, is to go back to our flapjack and we talked about how dopamine allows you to learn where the flapjack is and how yeah. much it costs and all the rest of it. Yeah. Um, and but if you were to uh, and if you were to be administered or have some deficiency in dopamine uh, biology, then you may not be able to learn about that as well. Yeah. If you were to be offered a choice between flapjacks and something less palatable whilst under the influence of a strong opioid receptor blocker, yeah, you would not show as strong a preference for your flapjack. So I've already learned that I like flapjacks, and flapjacks are good. Yeah. So it's after that stage. Uh, or, well, yeah. Okay. Although, I, I don't know, is palatability an endogenous phenomenon that you don't have to learn about? I don't know. Um. um I think I get the point that you're making. Though. The point being, yes. Their involvement in this. Yeah. It's the palatability, the perception that it is good, yeah, not the learning about it being good. Yeah, okay. Okay. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Oh. There we go. We okay. slipped flapjacks in there. Um, a brief mention about addiction to opiates. Okay. In the context of analgesia, uh, there's a, a, been a large increase in the diversity, availability, and use, I think, of opiate analgesics in recent years. Therefore, there is the perception that we're going to have this epidemic of opiate addicts roaming the streets as a result. Is that true? Uh, Giving lots of people opiates will obviously increase the abundance of opiate addicts. But taking opiate analgesics, even chronically, does not cause addiction. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's an important distinction. You... The increased abundance incidence of opiate addiction is generally found in people who have some sort of accompanying risk factor for addiction, either a personality trait or usually uh, a prehistory of some sort of substance dependence. Yep, I remember talking about that. You do? Yep. Um... That's all I need to say. Okay. Except uh, that the tolerance and occasionally the associated withdrawal are found in most people. So if you took 100 people and chronically treated them with uh, opiates or allowed them to chronically take opiates for a long period of time, 
they would almost all become tolerant to the analgesia and the euphoria and all the rest of it, but only a small percentage of them would become addicted. Okay. So the withdrawal is still a problem, but addiction not. Well, yeah. It's yeah. it's a problem, but it's not caused by the opiates. Yeah. It's yeah. the result of giving people who are susceptible to developing addiction opiates. If our listeners want to find out more, they can go back to the addiction podcast and re-listen to that bit. Yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. So we've done opiates and how they work and how they're important for analgesia. We should spend a moment or two talking about the other major type of analgesic drug, uh, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory oh, yeah. drugs. Your aspirins. In, is that is that the hmm? the pronunciation? I've no idea. There's, there's no one here to correct us, is there? So. NSAIDs. 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 It's just like aspirin. Boy band. NSAIDs. Boy band. Really? You saw them on the X Factor, did you? Yeah, I think so. No, I don't. I expected so much more. I don't watch the X Factor. It just sounds like a boy band. Does that show how old I'm getting? Probably. No, it's it's more the beard and the grey hair. Thank you. Non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Like aspirin. Let's just stick to aspirin. Okay. Uh, A lot of the things, a lot of the noxious stimuli are... uh, inflammatory mediators yeah all right your prostaglandins your substance p your bradyclinin your histamine yeah and they sensitize nociceptors to fire under conditions when they normally would not okay okay uh there are there are some important definitions it may be worth briefly mentioning i'm sure our students have met them elsewhere but you know there's no harm as part of the spiral curriculum to mention them again is there yep um, if I, what, I could just ask you if you know what they mean. Hyperalgesia? Nope. Have a guess. Hyperalgesia. All right. If analgesia is the... Is the absence yeah. of... Pain. Pain. Hypergesia, meaning you're feeling more pain than is appropriate or than there is elevated sensitivity to pain yeah stimulus hurts more than it should okay that's distinct from although often confused with allodynia 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 yeah right what's that that's when a stimulus hurts but it shouldn't if I like if I punch you very hard on the nose yeah it'll hurt a lot yes if I punch you very gently on the nose, it will hurt much less. Yeah. If you are experiencing hyperalgesia, it'll hurt a lot more. If you punch me a little, it'll hurt more than it. Than yeah. a little. Yeah. It'll hurt a lot. Okay. If I poke you on the nose, yeah, which shouldn't normally hurt, but you are experiencing allodynia, you will feel pain. So it's a stimulus that hurts when it shouldn't. Okay. If in the absence of me punching you in any way, your nose hurts, that's paresthesia. Right. Pain in the absence of a stimulus. Paresthesia. Right. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of those uh, hyperalgesic states arise through the sensitization of nociceptors. Simple examples are bruise. Okay. A bruise doesn't hurt generally unless yeah. you poke it. Yeah. Um, and that's because the nociceptors coming from the bruise are sensitized, so they will fire under conditions when they wouldn't normally. And you block that 
in part by blocking the synthesis of those inflammatory mediators. Yeah. So aspirin uh, inhibits cyclooxygenases, which would otherwise synthesize prostaglandins and okay. cause the sensitization of those nociceptors. Right. Got it? Yep. Is that more or less interesting than opioids? Less. Is the right answer. <laughs> um, what else can That's I tell you? very useful information, though. Uh, you want to talk about referred pain? Uh, yeah, yeah. If we're talking about pain, we should include referred pain, shouldn't we? Because no. it's important that students are aware that a patient may feel somatic pain from some region, but there is actually not actually, there's not pain coming from that region. It might be visceral pain. And it's it is, I believe, a an anatomical phenomenon. I mean, it, it arises through some confusion of anatomy. Is that correct? Probably. You know, you're supposed to tell me. Well, the way I mean, I don't know. How well understood it is i've never found a definitive description of all types of referred pain and the causes um maybe that's just because i don't look deeply enough because of the neuroscience but generally referred pain is um so say if you take the example of an inflamed appendix there's pain passing from the appendix and those uh, nociceptive fibers tend to take the same pathways the same routes rather physical routes as say sympathetic neurons i think back into the spinal cord at a certain level into the dorsal horn and the gray matter and then on onwards up to the brain which is all sensible but for some reason the brain perceives that pain as coming from the somatic neurons that are entering the spinal cords dorsal horn at the same level so with the start of an inflamed appendix the patient feels abdominal pain in the region of around um what the T10 dermatome, the same level as the umbilicus, but the pain isn't there. It's from it's in the appendix. So the the brain seems to be very good at perceiving somatic pain, which it sees quite a lot of, but it's very poor at perceiving visceral pain accurately. So the same thing happens then for other abdominal organs, and thoracic organs, and so on. So like the heart and pericardium, pain radiating around down your left shoulder and down your left arm, rather than actually purely being in the region of the heart. Why, Sam? That's Why? what we want to know. Which bit? Why? Why does it get confused? Why does the brain get confused? Yeah. That's your job. I don't know. No, I, I don't know either. I mean, I yeah, I mean, I understand. It's the same as if you look at the heart, if you look at the sympathetic, the levels of sympathetic innovation, and you assume that the um, nociceptive fibres are taking the same routes back to the same levels, and that, that kind of adds up to chest pain, shoulder pain, left arm pain. But why the brain struggles to perceive that visceral pain accurately, I don't and, know. And why you don't feel pain from your abdomen and your appendix. Are you why it doesn't work the other way around? Yeah. The explanation I've read in more than one source is just that the brain is not used to feeling pain in your kidneys or your yeah. lungs or whatever. That's That's how we generally described it's conceptually it. satisfying isn't it <laughs> it kind of does the job to the point of the, the medical student it yeah. being important that if you if you if you take a patient history and they report pain in such such a region but there's no obvious reason for that pain then you know what to look for viscerally and how, also how to explain it to the patient because the patient doesn't understand when they've got um, a liver problem or a gallbladder problem why they're getting pain in their right shoulder and what if they ask why well, you give them the explanation from this podcast and that usually satisfies them. Let's just hope they've not listened to the podcast. In fact, you don't, yeah. In fact usually the patient is, yeah, 
you explain the idea of referred pain, maybe without the neurons and stuff. And they fall gently asleep. And they're happy with that, yeah. All right. I mean, yeah. Anatomy in action. Okay. I think we've, I think we've done it. Yeah. So the next podcast will be about movement, right? No, I told you. No, movement doesn't exist. We don't talk about movement. Next, next time we're going to talk about the most important neurotransmitter in the brain. Uh, right. Okay. What's that? No, you're supposed to guess. No, you're supposed to make an informed uh, guess based upon the the six neuroscience podcasts we've done to date. We could be here all day. The most important neurotransmitter in the well, brain. Well, the most interesting anyway. Acetylcholine. <laughs> Is that the peripheral that's, nervous system only? That's uh, second only to glycine in the tedium stakes. What's interesting about acetylcholine? So I'm, I'm still thinking about movement. Exactly. <laughs> Go on, you tell me, what's the most interesting neurotransmitter in the brain from your perspective, in it, your opinion? And my opinion is the most important. Because it's likely, more likely to come up in the exam. <laughs> Therefore, your opinion is the most important. No, 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 no. Um, Next week, we will be talking about... Dopamine. Dopamine. Oh, we're back to dopamine again. What do you mean back to dopamine? Okay. That, well, they're in. Well, we've talked about dopamine quite a bit, but we're going to go into dopamine in more detail, are we? Well, I tell you what we're going to do, yeah. Samuel. We're going to scratch that itch of yours. We're going to talk about movement. And dopamine. Yeah. Okay. We're just not going to talk about the whole tracts and afferents, skeletal muscle, blah de blah um, oh God, I'm disparaging my own lecture here, aren't I? We're going to talk about the basal ganglia, how dopamine regulates uh, voluntary and involuntary movements, and what happens when the substantia nigra, which is the source of the dopamine, uh, dies and you get Parkinson's. I'm making the links now. Hey, yeah. I'm looking forward to that already. That'd Look be good. Look at that spiral in action. Yeah, yeah. Maybe Rhiannon and I will talk about uh, the neuroanatomy of movement. We'll just leave the brain out in our crossover podcast you're going to talk about the neuroanatomy movement but leave the brain out yeah you know as in we'll do the spinal cord and the tracts and stuff we'll do a bit of brain but only the brain starts up here and then neurons come out of it and then they do this a bit of of motor homunculus yeah okay we've got to finish the leg first though well and we we can we can come back to it as well and talk about things like i don't know stroke and uh, the cortical regions associated with movement so we're going to link it all up and it's going to be nice and clinical and relevant. As always. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, thank you, Phil. Hey, it was a pleasure. Martin Hannett. What? Martin Hannett. Martin You're Hannett. the podcast producer. Right. Who's Martin Hannett? <sighs> Until next time. <laughs> we'll Google that then. <laughs>